friends, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This week's guest is Lee Jones, a reader in international politics at Queen Mary, University of London, and one of the people behind the blog, The Full Brexit. I've known Lee for a number of years, and I find him to be a thoughtful and provocative commentator on quite a range of issues. He was actually one of the early voices, for example, to challenge the mainstream liberal analysis of the 2016 US election, and the idea that blame for the election of Donald Trump should be laying at the feet of the white working class voters and other so-called deplorables. Now, Lee and his fellow bloggers at the Full Brexit have been developing a serious critique of the EU, and at the core of their argument is a claim that the EU is a fundamentally anti-democratic project, one that was designed from the outset to disempower voters by transferring jurisdiction over decisions to do with the economy from member states to an anonymous technocratic body called the European Commission, a body which, mind you, has pretty much only one directive, and that is to advance the European neoliberal project. Now, to be clear, I do pretty much agree with all of Lee's critique of the European Union. My problem, however, is that I find myself quite deeply confused about what the left ought to be doing about it, and thusly, what to do about Brexit. On the one hand, I am sympathetic to the likes of Grace Blakely, who has an excellent piece on Novara right now, arguing, as I quote, at its heart, the problem the EU presents to the left is not enough democracy and too many veto players. Even if the left managed the heroic task of taking control of the European Parliament, the Commission and the Council, both have a veto and both continue to be strongly influenced by both the national interests of the most powerful states and special interest groups. The combination of these factors would prevent any attempt at a socialist transformation within the EU. Now, equally, I also do find it helpful to try to take a step back and listen to people like Yanis Varoufakis, who argued in a recent appearance on the DIG podcast that we simply may not have a choice but to take our battle to the EU itself. This is the so-called remain and rebel strategy. Now, Sure, as folks at Novara will be quick to point out, there is no European demos, and in the absence of an authentic European policy, it's hard to imagine how the EU could ever be reformed. But as Yanis Varoufakis points out, the existence of a demos may be quite beside the point if the European Union does fall apart. It's not like the alternative will be a return to some kind of utopia of nation-states. It's likely going to be something much worse as the so-called Visegrad Eastern European countries, Germany and a few other Northern European states likely band together to create a hyper-deflationary European Union on neoliberal steroids. Um, Obviously, that's not something we want to confront either. So what are the real choices here? We have two very well-reasoned left positions but with diametrically opposed strategies and diametrically opposed readings of the long-term scenario that an unravelling of the European Union would present. So, 
challenges all around. This is the first in a series of podcasts we'll be doing on Brexit and the European Union more broadly. And this one, I think, couldn't really be coming at a more relevant time. Lee and I recorded this interview on December 3rd at the start of one of the most tumultuous weeks in British parliamentary history. One week earlier, the European Council had agreed to the terms of Prime Minister Theresa May's draft withdrawal agreement, a large technical document which sets the schedule and the terms of Britain's departure from the EU beginning in March 2019. But as I post this episode, it is anyone's guess what is going to happen next. This coming Tuesday, December 12th, the draft is set to go before the British Parliament, where it is expected to fail. After that, a confidence vote could be called for, but as James Butler of Novara has been arguing, that's no easy proposition either. And there are a number of reasons why, especially from a left perspective, we might want it to fail. Principally, its commitment to a potentially permanent version of the so-called backstop, um, which could put a serious constraint on the future government, potentially, uh, of a Jeremy Corbyn, and his effort uh, to uh, reinvigorate state aid to ailing British industry and restore British jobs. So that's not something we particularly wish to see. Uh, However, in a dramatic development on Tuesday, Conservative backbencher Dominic Grieve passed an amendment stating that Parliament can amend whatever deal May comes back with, which she must, within 21 days, according to the EU Withdrawal Act. This may make a no-deal Brexit impossible, though Tory Brexiteers have suggested the motion cannot be binding, so we'll see. Anyway, all that to say, much is up in the air right now in Brexit land. Perhaps all the more reason then to take a moment to step back and spend some time thinking about the EU and its democratic credentials. So to get our Brexit series off the ground, here is Lee Jones. Riley Jones, welcome to Fully Automated. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's an important topic, and I'm glad uh, you, you've joined us. I think um, if you had met me even 10 years ago, um, you would have considered me probably a real Euro pain in the ass. Like, uh, I was <laughs> definitely one of these people that was... Um, I, I suppose it's a sort of a sign of, of the situation I was raised in. You know, the, there was a lot of pro-European uh, ideology in Ireland when I was growing up. And uh, as a result, I really was a true believer when I was a kid. You know, I went to the European Youth Parliament when I was in secondary school. Then I went on, I got a BA in European Public Affairs at the University of Limerick, which was really pushing the kind of European Union as a kind of a career path. Uh, at that time, uh, I wanted myself to do nothing more than go work for the European Commission. I uh, went to work in Brussels for a little while as an intern. And while I was there, I read all about this amazing communist guy called Altiero Spinelli and his dream of building a European federalism as a way of preventing war uh, on the continent. So I have spent a lot of my adult life believing in the European Union. And lately, just watching the way Brexit has been going on, I've been starting to question things, Lee. So I wondered if you could come on the show and maybe start to outline what it is that you think people like me um, don't get about the European Union. Um, Was the EU always a mistake? Was there ever a time it was good? 
And why do you think it's time for Britain to exit the EU? So the first thing I want to say to you, Nick, is you shouldn't feel bad about being pro-EU in the past. One of the things the EU does is it takes perfectly humane, decent, honourable uh, motivations like a desire for solidarity and cooperation and peace, but it channels those sentiments towards fundamentally undemocratic and unaccountable modes of rule. And you know the way that we have been developing our critique of, of Brexit is through the lens of sovereignty and saying sovereignty is not something that's outdated, it's something that matters, and it needs to be defended on democratic ground. Now, the, this is not a new position. The left historically was always against um, European integration. Right from the immediate uh, post-war decades, you know, Clement Attlee, the guy who created the um, welfare state in the United Kingdom after the war, he was firmly opposed to European integration because he saw it as a way of essentially outlawing socialism. Uh, right through the 1970s, there was a left campaign against European integration. It was really only in the late 1980s that the left flipped. Hmm. And so what we're trying to do with full Brexit is to um, revive that that strand of left Euroscepticism, if you like. And our main critique is about democracy, that the EU is not democratic. And by that, we don't mean that the EU is a supranational entity, some kind of super state that bosses the member states around. That's just not the case. Right. Um, instead, we see it as a, an outgrowth and an entrenchment of a process of depoliticization uh, and the entrenching of neoliberalism and the doctrine that there is no alternative in political life. And there's two um, touchstones that we have, if you like, theoretical touchstones. One is mm. Peter Mayer's book, Ruling the Void. Yeah. Which says that right across Western Europe, right across the established mature democracies, an enormous void has opened up between ordinary voters and the political establishment. And lots of people are disengaged from politics. They don't think voting matters anymore. They've been completely abandoned by their traditional representatives. And there's therefore been a breakdown in representative democracy. Um, and you see that right across the West. And the second touchstone is... Um, a much more recent book, Chris Bickerton's um, book on European integration from nation states to member states. What he argues is that um, the EU has grown out of this process of estrangement between the ordinary voters and the political establishment. As this estrangement has opened up, political elites in Europe no longer look to their own electorates for um, development of policy ideas and platforms and legitimation. They look increasingly to each other. Mm -hmm. The place that they policy is in the secret star chambers of the of of the European Union. Hmm. So, um, you know, state apparatuses um, have become networked across state borders, and political elites uh, develop their policy platforms increasingly narrower and narrower in a collaboration with each other. So, Perry Anderson puts it very nicely somewhere, and he says the European Union converts you know the normal. Um, flow and contestation of politics at the national level into something that looks like 19th century style uh, secret diplomacy. Wow. And that is what we are saying has to end. Um, as, as Democrats, you cannot possibly support the European Union, regardless of whether you're left or right. I happen to be on the right. We're in, uh, sorry, on the left. We are all <laughs> on the, in the full Brexit. Yeah. Um, uh, but actually, if anybody that wants accountable representative government yeah. should be opposed to EU membership. 
So Lee, many listeners to this show are um, not British. Um, many actually are American. And I would expect, you know, in fairness, they're not all going to be up on the nuances of the Brexit story to date. Um, and it, I think it's been a really fast-moving story, especially in the last few weeks. Uh, we've had just a spate of developments. November 13th, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May uh, obtained the agreement of her cabinet for the so-called draft withdrawal agreement, which is a fairly large technical document that sets out the schedule in terms of, of how Britain is going to leave the EU beginning on March uh, or in March of 2019. Uh, then on November 25th, just recently, we had uh, this text receiving agreement from the European Council at a special summit in Brussels. And then uh, next week on December 12th, the draft is going to go before the British Parliament, where, interestingly enough, it is expected to fail. Um, so one scratches one's head and wonders why Theresa May would present such a deal. And the answer that comes is that it's likely that she's anticipating uh, being able to resubmit it, given that the I prospect, if you will, of a, of a crash out or no deal Brexit uh, might really leave the British economy so shaken that um, she'll, you know, the, the, there'll be no other uh, alternative but to embrace her, her proposition. And uh, we can uh, go into uh, how Theresa May has been uh, positioned in this way to, to, to have this highly indigestible uh, uh, draft agreement that she has to present. Uh, people like Yanis Varoufakis are going to chime in there and say that's just the way the EU negotiates. Uh, Britain really hasn't had a chance to 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 get a proper deal out of this process because um, of the way the, the the divorce bill has kind of been framed as the first issue, and then the terms of the divorce are going to come second. So um, right now, it looks like either way, there's going to be. Um, a Brexit. The only question is whether it's going to be a hard Brexit or an exit on the EU's terms, a la May's draft deal. So as someone who is interested in these issues, Lee, as someone who's in favour of exit, given these two choices on the table, which one do you think the left should be arguing for? Is there anything to be said for a crash out Brexit? Well, I think it might be helpful for your listeners to take a step backwards sure. and understand how we get to this situation and what this situation is before I get into um, deal and no deal. So the we had a referendum in June 2016, which produced a majority for the 17.4 million people voting for Leave, the right. largest yes. single democratic mandate ever. Mm. The following March, after legal wranglings about who had the right to do it, the government triggered um, Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, which then starts a two-year countdown um, during which you must negotiate the terms of your exit from the European Union. And so, come what may, apparently, uh, we will be leaving after the end of that two-year period on the 29th of March next year. Right. Now, the reason why things have all gone pear-shaped is that the um, British establishment is overwhelmingly pro-EU. Mm -hmm. So all of the major political parties campaigned to remain in the EU. Right. Um, 85% of parliamentarians voted to remain. And so there was enormous shock when the electorate didn't do as they were told and returned this result. And so yeah. you, the irony is that you have a decision to leave being implemented by an overwhelmingly Remainer elite. So Theresa May herself, for example, campaigned very quietly for remain. Um, 
so they don't really have a vision, a clear vision of how the UK can leave the EU and go off in a different direction. Um, they have an instruction, and, and some in the Tory party think it's important to follow that instruction. But they generally want to maintain as much of the status quo as possible. And that's true across the entire political establishment. Um, as a result, they've never been willing to walk away from their negotiation, uh, so-called no-deal um, Brexit. Now, to be clear, what no-deal means is that the UK would trade with the European Union on World Trade Organization rules. Right. Now, 164 other countries already do that. So this is not something that's impossible. It's not fantastical. It's not weird in any way. You know, the United States, China, they, they all trade with the EU on these terms. So there's no reason to say that no deal Brexit was, a, you know, bad things in day one. Sure. Or that it would be disorderly. It could have been planned for and managed, but the political elite never wanted to do that. And so they were never willing to walk away. And so they've simply had to accept very poor terms set by the European Union um, to avoid um, a disruptive outcome. So that's how we got the bad deal that's now before Parliament. And it's, it's inevitable when you're not willing to walk away. So Yanis Varoufakis is, is right about that in terms of the way the EU negotiates. But mm -hmm. the fundamental fault lies with the UK. You know, the British political establishment did not have a clear plan when they triggered Article 50. And they've done very badly ever since. Um, so I think that we're now in a very difficult position because no deal has not been prepared for. It was only a few months ago that the government just started making contingency plans for no deal um, after nearly 18 months of, of negotiations. So the, <clears throat> a no deal Brexit would now be quite disruptive. I mean, it wouldn't be apocalyptic. I mean, the scare stories that are circulating around this are, are truly ridiculous. Um, but uh, it, there's no doubt it will be disruptive. And the, the, the things that we could have done to mitigate and minimize that disruption have, have simply not been done or they've even been half done. So I do think you're right that there's a sense she's presenting it to Parliament and saying there is no alternative, that old fat, that's right dictum. It's my deal huh. or no deal or no Brexit. Right. Um, right. And so that she does hope to kind of bully people into accepting her deal. Um, and I've just written a piece for the full Brexit today saying that, you know, we shouldn't be bullied into it because the deal is so awful. Yeah. Um, no Democrat should should be coerced into accepting it. Yeah, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes, Lee, uh, so that people can access it. Um so, uh, Lee, just for the sake of accuracy and um, to sort of to, to round out the analysis here, um, and I'd love to get back in a minute to uh, hearing you maybe talk about some of the scare stories that have been mobilized to push uh, or, or intimidate, if you will, British voters into um, a certain response to the specter of Brexit. But but just before we go there, um, I... I do want to ask you about the other options on the table. Not not that the options are necessarily there, but but a lot of people seem to believe there are alternatives to Brexit even at this point. Uh, so, for example, an election is not necessarily out of the equation, and uh, some would even hope for a second referendum. You know, there there are different groups in play. You have first of all the pro Brexit factions in the Tory Party, hardline Tories with a, a future of Britain as a kind of a deregulated 
poor style capitalist utopia. And of course, with them, you have a, a very small group, but an important group nonetheless, the DUP, a Northern Irish Unionist Party, who currently are shoring up the Tory party's majority and, of course, play an important part in this story because um, it's it's likely that Theresa May's uh, draft will draw a regulatory border in the Irish Sea, thus dividing Northern Ireland a bit from the rest of the United Kingdom. We'll get back to that in a minute. Then you also have Jeremy Corbyn's party uh, with its famous six Brexit tests who are unlikely to support the draft's commitments to uh, retaining the EU rules, as, as, as I believe the draft currently stands, retaining the EU's rules against state aid. And then thirdly, uh, you have a mixed body of mainstream liberals, progressives who are calling for a second referendum. And as far as I can see, the data on whether a second referendum would carry is not exactly persuasive. But um, on the other hand, an election seems a bit remote too. The UK currently has something called a fixed-term Parliament Act, which means that the Tories are basically in power for the next couple of years regardless. So how likely are either of those options to, to, to be implemented or to come into play um, is is you know are they the only alternatives to Brexit or is there some other kind of scenario? Um, some would say May has already hinted at it herself, where the UK could request, say, an extension, maybe even an indefinite extension of Article Fifty, and the whole thing just gets punted to some future, perhaps far future date. Hmm. Um, well, let me first say something about the the Labour Party because sure. you say that the the reason that they might oppose the Brexit deal is is something to do with retaining state aid rules and that's right. not that's not correct the not correct the labor party's complaint is that the withdrawal agreement doesn't replicate exactly what we already have as eu members and that's what their ridiculous six tests are designed to ensure and uh-huh. the second the second test in particular says we should have exactly the same benefits as existing arrangements with a ludicrous test mm-hmm. um, it really sums up the um, complete lack of any principled leadership or any substantive position for the Labour Party. They they really stand exposed now um, because if you look at their six tests, that second ludicrous one aside, May's, May's deal, because it maintains so much of the status quo, actually should command Labour Party support. But they said even before the withdrawal agreement was published, they would vote against the government. It's just pure opportunism and lack of any um, real leadership. So... The in terms of you know gazing into my crystal ball, um, the the crucial thing is that the clock is ticking. As I said, Article Fifty has been triggered. The UK will leave the European Union in in March 2019, unless the rest of the European Union states agree to an extension of the Article Fifty process, which would be time limited, uh, and they would only agree to do that if it was a big for a big political reason. So maybe for a general election, maybe. Um, uh, and probably almost certainly, I would say, if, if there was the prospect of a second referendum, that would lead to Britain voting to stay in. You know, they certainly would uh, extend the process then, I'm sure. Um, in terms of the first option, I mean, I really do not understand how a general election would solve anything because... Right. As I say, Labour's position is, is cowardly and confused. They have no real policy. Uh, they are calling for a general election, but if they were to win, which is not certain, um, because they're consistently trailing a couple of points behind the Tories, 
even with this shambolic Tory government, they're polling well behind, which tells mm. you something about how bad the Labour Party is. Um, what would they do if they won office? I don't think they've got any idea. The best they could do is go to Europe and try to negotiate a few tweaks to the agreement. There's no way that the EU will simply reopen um, the talks substantively. And it's not. It's still not clear what Labour's policy on Brexit is, what they would do if they won. And right. as you say, there is, a, there is a barrier to a general election, which is under the Fixed-Term Par- Parliament Act. Uh, there needs to be a lot of support in Parliament for dissolving Parliament and calling, calling an election. And I don't think there's enough votes for that either. Um, the possibility of a second referendum, in, I see that now as increasingly likely. Um, it does not, as you say, have majority support among the general public. Uh, it's never achieved a majority of support in the polls because most people, I think, regardless of how they voted, are Democrats and they don't think that the they don't think that the first result should be overthrown. Um, but on the other the other side, the political establishment, as I say, are overwhelmingly pro EU, and they would really, I think, like this nightmare to end. Um, and yes. They'd love to just bounce back to the people and say, "Oh, look, guys, can you just change your mind, please? This is a complete mess." You know, we, we don't want to do it. We can't do it. Um, so that's really building momentum. But again, that would take, um, you know, a long time to get a bill through Parliament. Mm-hmm. There would be a lot of contestation about how that would be framed. Right. You know, would it be a three-way vote or single transferable vote? Do you have two votes? I mean, it's all very complicated. Sure. Um, so the only other thing that's been talked about that you haven't mentioned is there's this mm. kind of muttering about some kind of off-the-shelf option, which means the UK would, instead of having its own special deal, would join an existing arrangement, the European Economic Area, the European Free Trade Area, sometimes called the Norway Option. Right. Um, and that is being floated by some people as you know a backup to May's um, deal. So if that falls, then you've got this, you can bring it off the shelf and at least you avoid a no-deal um, you know, cliff edge Brexit, as they like to call it. But that's also quite a weak option because uh, it's not really Brexit. You remain, you know, very tightly within EU structures. Um, and it's not really a, a kind of temporary position from which you could negotiate a good deal either. So really, you know, it's it's all up in the air, to be honest. And I think maybe this is what May's banking, like you say, that she can, the fear of sort of chaos and unrest and Right. Um, things falling apart will eventually coerce enough people in the in the Conservative Party to support the deal. So, Lee, maybe we can take a step back from um, these more immediate questions for a second or two here. Um, I would like to ask you about your own sort of intellectual story and how you got to this point. You've you've, as you mentioned, you've been involved with this blog, uh, aptly named "The Full Brexit," and I notice. Uh, just sort of leafing through various pages there that your list of founding signatories uh, includes the names of a lot of fairly radical leftists um, who have all in different ways, I suppose, but but uh, come out in support of exit. You've got uh, well-known names like Kostas Lapovitsas, uh, and then also people like James Hartfield, Thomas Faggi, uh, Philip Cunliffe, and, uh, and a former guest of this show, Tara McCormick. Um, and also you have some supporters, including people like Wolfgang Streak. So, you know, you're, you're by no means isolated on that count. Um, 
But I imagine um, many uh, will also find reading various essays. You've mentioned earlier on in this interview, Peter Mayer's book, Ruling the Void. Uh, I think a lot of people will find, you know, th- there's there's no shortage on the site of, uh, you know, heavy-hitting intellectual analysis of the issues confronting uh, citizens hoping for democratic solutions in the face of Europe's neoliberal technocracy. Um, nevertheless, I, you know, wh- while I imagine a lot of people on the left will find common ground with you intellectually, uh, it seems that the left on a whole has a kind of a love affair with the EU. And mm. I was just wondering then, as, as, a, as a left-oriented blog, you know, how has this come together? What have you been hoping to accomplish with it? And how has it been received, especially by the left? Has your message found any kind of traction? Mm. So, I mean... It- Yes, it is a little bit lonely uh, taking this position as an academic um, because 90% of academics in the UK voted Remain. So if you're a Leave voting academic, you're pretty rare and um, some people are subject to, to a lot of abuse. Um, right. we, we, know some, um, we know some gay academics who uh, said, well, we can come out as gay, but we can't come out as Leave supported. Wow. So that tells you something about the climate in universities um, in the UK. Right. But um, you know, the, core of, the core of the full Brexit group is a group of us that were um, working on a project called Sovereignty and its Discontents when we were doing our, our graduate studies. Yeah. Um, in, some of us based in Oxford, some in other, other places. And that was uh, about 14 years ago. So we've been thinking about these issues, thinking about the sovereignty question, for a long time, this is not some, um, you know, fly-by-night thing that has popped up a couple of, of years ago. Mm-hmm. Did a, we were working on a, a blog called The Current Moment, which was analysing not just stuff in in Europe but politics in the United States and elsewhere. Yeah. And um, you know, Chris Bickerton has been really important in pushing forward a theoretical account of European integration, like I said earlier on. And he also published. Um, a citizen's guide to the EU published by Penguin during the referendum. Uh, and then after the referendum, you know, there was a very kind of nasty um, atmosphere and it got very febrile and so on. And, uh, you know, generally the view that people on the Remain side have tried to propagate, the ones that have never accepted the referendum result, is that uh, Leave voters are basically stupid knuckle-draggers who right. were fooled by some slogans on the side of a bus, and nobody with um, more than half a brain cell could possibly support um, leaving the European Union. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the proportion of academics supporting Remain is seen, is seen and is, is adduced as evidence for this. So the first move towards sort of pushing academics to try and speak out and take a more rational or even-handed approach uh, was a um, a website called Briefings for Brexit, which was started by a couple of academics at Cambridge. Um, and I supported that, as did Phil Cunliffe from, from the full Brexit. And that was kind of policy-focused. It was trying to say, well, actually, you know, academics should be offering advice to help, to help the government steer through this process, right. like they would with any other policy area, instead of just um, you know spitting their dummy out and throwing their toys out of the pram. Um, 
Uh, but that's kind of mostly sort of it's quite wonkish and more aimed at the right. And you know, we're on we're on the left. And so we, you know, I suppose a bit too belatedly, really, in uh, earlier this year, we organised a conference at the LSE on the political theory of Brexit, and it was an attempt to sort of coax left wing. Um, leave supporters in the academy and also wider intellectual life out of the woodwork mm-hmm. and get to talk about what's going on and think about you know how are we how are we reckoning with this uh, what sense do we make of European integration how can what sense do we make of the Brexit process and so on what's at stake and um, it it took a, a lot of organising but the event was an incredible success and there was a real energy in the room. And a desire to to do something, to do something more. Um, even though we have quite limited resources, uh, we founded this network before Brexit. And you know, the idea is to is to put forward an analysis of the European Union, of European politics, and of Brexit, with a view to understanding it properly, moving past very tired, um, often offensive analyses, mm. um, to really understand what's going on. And to create the basis for proper, for proper left understanding of, of the world, and therefore for, for better left politics. Lee, it's very um, convenient, isn't it? Sorry to cut across you there, but it is very convenient if those um, sort of knuckle dragger stories, uh, as you put it, uh, were, were the the reason for everything that's going wrong right now. I mean, even in the U.S. and aftermath of the 2016 election, I think you saw a very similar kind of argument. The uh, idea of a white lash or a sort of a yeah. the hillbilly elegy formulation yeah. that uh, yeah. you know Trump is just um, you know the result of uh, people with nothing other than prejudice and hatred in their hearts and um, a fear of the alien other. Um, mm-hmm. They are um, not informed. They are, you know, they're, they're, there is no sort of rational argument to their position. Mm-hmm. And so they can be dismissed um, or written out of the equation. They're a problem to be solved, not a group of people to be reasoned with or uh, engaged with or listened to. Do you find that that kind of analysis of the 2016 election resonates with uh, what, what you're finding people are saying about Brexit voters in the UK? Oh, sure. I mean, it's been, there's a great podcast that your listeners should also subscribe to called Alpha Bunga Bunga. Oh, yeah. Which, which <laughs> uh, Phil Cunliffe co-produced. And they had a great episode on neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or knobs. That's a, yes, and, I love uh, that episode. It's a fantastic episode. And it really just sums up everything that's that's happening, not just with Brexit and Trump, but um, all around the world. That yeah, Their starting point is, we've reached the end of the end of history. Yeah. So politics is coming back. Mm-hmm. But the people who have, who've sort of been lulled into a, into a false sense of security, that this is politics, this is bureaucratic, technical, managerialist, you know, neoliberal, capitalist utopia. This is politics. Um, that, and everybody's kind of on board with this. The only way that they can understand anything that disrupts this is it must be completely fundamentally irrational. Uh, these people are stupid, or they're manipulated, or Russian bots are involved, or mm-hmm. whatever you know, dark money, blah blah. Right. The worst sort right. of um, elitism and kind of nonsensical conspiracy theories are cooked up to try to explain this. And this is why there's a desperate need for better intellectual analysis because you cite a few names as our supporters, for example, but 
it's a very short list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the majority of academics are still in this in this mode of of um, just thinking the whole thing is just a disastrous mess and it should never have happened and people should never have been asked to vote on it and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and it, it's, you know, there's a desperate need to understand what's going on in the world better uh, because the left will never be able to achieve its goals if it looks at ordinary citizens mm-hmm. with contempt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And contempt, fear, loathing, sneering is the dominant reaction of the main institutional left today. And on a personal level, you know, part of my motivation for, for pushing forward and saying we've got to do something, we've got to form something that's going to put out this this message is to is to stand with and to stand up for the maligned working classes in the UK. You know, I come from a working yeah. class background. Um, I'm the first in my family to go to university. I, my family is um, working class. A lot of my friends are working class. They don't deserve the the abuse and the insults that are constantly hurled at them. Right. And I think it's it's very important actually for people in, um, you know in universities to stand up and say, actually, we know that you're being abused uh, and it's not fair. And actually we stand up with you and we stand, we stand up for you as well. So that was a personal motivation for me. Hmm. In terms of track, I mean, it's, you know, as I say, we're a small group with, with few resources, but I think the analysis that we've been developing over many years has the, has the merit of being correct. And consistently correct. So we call a lot of things correctly. And I was going back for something I was writing. I was going back over something I wrote just after the referendum about the dangers of invoking Article 50 too early and dissolving into technocratic negotiations. That it, you would end up with Brexit in name only. That's what we've ended up. Yeah. Um, you know, we were right on con- a number of things, and I think that that consistency, I think, attracts people. And I think, okay, there must be something going on here that is generating analyses that are consistently worn out, which very few left commentators can say these days. And there was a recent article in the New Statesman by George Eaton, the political editor, who said that a nice kind of deconstruction of the, the right-wing idea about Brexit, you know, turning Britain into a, an offshore Singapore kind of low-regulation environment. That The wheels have come completely off that project insofar as they were ever on. Can you clarify that? The wheels have come off what exactly, Lee? The, the idea that you could that you would uh, have some global Britain, this you know lean, mean trading machine, got it, um, low regulation and so on. I mean, this would never entertain public support. Eaton points out in his article it had four percent support for lowering taxes and regulation. It's, it's a fringe, nutcase position. Yeah, um, and the, and those kinds of right wing Brexiteers have shown themselves completely unable to lead and to mobilize people towards their visions. I mean, they're basically finished. Um, they're basically left-wing, left-wing's bogeyman. Um, so that is, the wheels have come off that. So in terms of, you know, how, how, where do we take the country? What direction do we go in? What, where is the vision for a post-Brexit Britain that is, um, that is fairer, more just, and ordinary people have a say in the governance of the country? The right has nothing to say about that. The left should have something to say about it. It strikes me, Lee, that you know a, a lot of this overlooks the um, old uh, leftist traditions in the UK, maybe especially those associated with 
the clashes with Thatcherism in the 1980s, coal miners, etc., who um, were opposed to the European Union quite early on in the story. I wanted to ask you, as someone living in the UK, to what extent that sort of older population of leftists, uh, maybe maybe not involved with the Labour Party, maybe people associated with supporting the likes of Tony Benn, um, to what extent you feel that that constituency was active in the Brexit movement? And um, I wanted to ask you as well if you happen to have read a piece that came out by Fintan O'Toole, a, a long read piece in The Guardian, I think it was November 16th, uh, where he kind of really sort of wrote off um, the Brexit impulse as inspired just solely by a kind of a nostalgia for for British imperialism. Uh, I, I think to pick a quote from from the piece, he said, you know, uh, for Brexiters, if Britain is not imperial power, it must be the only thing it can be, a colony. <laughs> and it's like, so you, you, you kind of got yourself caught between this kind of um, tendency to write off the Brexit movement as, as you said earlier on, knuckle draggers, but then also like you know, perhaps a, a real need to actually, you know, empirically draw attention to these other constituencies that, that would, would hardly be describable as, as imperialistic or um, nostalgic for, for British colonialism. Well, look, I mean, I, I don't know any uh, Leave voters personally who are nostalgic for empire and i don't know many working class people that are nostalgic for empire either yeah so Um, how does does someone like fintan o'toole get taken seriously saying these things it's it's quite striking it's i mean a lot of people on the remain side don't know any leave voters Mm. and it says something about the kind of cultural political social divide in this country that um People are very divided like this. And so they view, you know, the other side through certain lenses. And I think leave voters are also guilty of this um, as well. So how do we understand this? Oh, well, you know, the, the, the leave campaign was uh, very xenophobic and it mobilized people on an anti-immigration sentiment. The fact that the leave campaign won must mean that people here are xenophobic and racist. So it, that's the train of logic. It's mm. it's no more sophisticated than that. Um, and of course, the campaign, the Leave campaign, was um, very unpleasant in the way that it mobilised anti-immigration sentiment. And anti-immigration sentiment was no doubt part of the um, explanation why the referendum went the way that it did. Yeah. But I always draw the distinction between anti-immigration sentiment and anti-immigrant sentiment. Mm-hmm. So, in, in so far as you can measure racism and intolerance and there are various attempts to do so and all of them are vulnerable to criticism of course but those measures are used across europe across the entire world britain always comes out as one of the most liberal tolerant societies in the world um that is it's open to people to come here from around the world and make their home here and uh, the everyday racism and so on that they encounter is far less than many other countries in europe you know we're ranked only behind I think Sweden and Denmark hmm. in Europe, um, and you know it's it's a it's a real uh, slur on the British public to suggest that they're somehow racist knuckle draggers. All the all the hmm. polls show, um, even as concern about immigration has increased, 
the the view that immigrants should also be white and Christian yeah. has decreased. That's decreased. So what's going on with the concern about immigration? For me, it was a flashpoint hmm. about the void. Ordinary people have been suffering for a long time um, with stagnating wages, um, the deindustrialization, low quality jobs, um, lack of a clear uh, trajectory for their uh, their children, um, lack of access to housing, um, difficulty accessing public services, and that's all intensified under under austerity, of course. And so, what you've got is a you can think of it as being a shrinking pie. Yeah. And the British establishment says to them, well, you, there's no alternative to the shrinking pie. You just have to put up with it. But by the way, you're going to have to share that pie with many more diners because we're admitting um, hundreds of thousands of new people to the country every year. Now, it, that, coupled with a situation where the left has basically abandoned the working classes, takes their votes for granted, doesn't really represent their interests. Mm-hmm. You have a situation where people are hurting and they don't really have a, a framework to make sense of why they're hurting. But the right gives them a framework. They say it's immigration. And what's left of the left in the Labour Party panders to that. The Labour Party's been pandering to anti-immigrant sentiment for years. So the idea that, you know, that, that it's only a right-wing agenda, I think, is, is completely wrong. So we've had very high levels of net immigration for a long time rising popular concern about their living standards, which then gets linked to immigration. Because the overall economic and social structure and the way that the economy is governed and so on, that can't change. Yeah. You say, you just have to put up with that. There is no alternative. But the one thing that the, that you could change is you could stop bringing in, allowing more and more people to come in every year. So that really becomes a flashpoint in the disconnection between ordinary people who are hurting and the political establishment that, that don't listen to them, ostensibly on the surface, panders to their anti-immigration concern, therefore don't fight it, and channel their resentment and concerns in a more progressive direction, but don't actually do anything about it. You mentioned the the, the void there, um, and I mm-hmm. presume that's a, going back to the uh, Peter Mayer book. What What's your answer to people who would sort of take everything you're saying at, 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 on its face and say, uh, you know, I totally agree with you, um, but is there not a way that the void can be resolved um, or handled, fixed uh, within a European project? Um, I mentioned Yanis Varoufakis earlier on, just to come back to him again, he uh, has an organization, a, a political party, if you will, called DM25. I don't think it's been particularly successful. Um, and I recognize equally that uh, a lot of critics of him and that movement um, point out that there doesn't really exist yet something called a European demos, which presumably would have to exist in order for there to be a constituency that would that would that would vote as a coherent block for for such a party um so i understand that that's one criticism but but is is a european demos an impossibility or or do you think there's something about the european union that would even 
prevent such a, uh, a European project, um, a reformist, a sort of a remain but rebel, as he puts it, as Varoufakis puts it, um, type strategy uh, succeeding within the European Union? Well, I think Janis Varoufakis is a dangerous fantasist, to mm-hmm. be honest. Okay. Tell he me what you has think, never... Lee. <laughs> he has never understood the true nature of the European Union. He labored under the fantasy that it was reformable. Mm-hmm. When he was finance minister under the Syriza government of Greece, he really believed that there, there could be a good EU. You know, if he could just appeal to the, the better angels in the EU, they would see that their yeah. program would be rational and they would eventually come round and, and, and let Greece off. And proven completely false. Um, and Greece has been completely annihilated by the by the EU as a result, right? Um, because of Greece's unwillingness to walk away from the EU, um, and Varoufakis still labours under this delusion of the the good EU, or at least a potentially good EU, right? right. Um, the way that the European Union is structured, and this is why it's not a super state that's bossing member states around, it's still yep. structured strongly among along national lines. When you um, vote in European Parliament elections. I mean, the European Parliament is a fig leaf anyway, quite frankly, but sure. you, don't, you don't vote for European parties. You vote for local political parties that then form European groups. And they're not, they don't have a, a single political program. They don't have a coherent um, ideology. Uh, they are national, they're aggregations of national grouping. Um, and then, of course, the council is composed of the representatives of member states themselves, and the council and the and the uh, commission is is appointed by the uh, member states. So it it locks in a national form of government actually, and fails to transcend the nation in terms of your identity. And certainly in Britain, people have never felt particularly European anyway. This is a long-standing. A long-standing issue, even among sure, Remainers, sure. only a small proportion felt a strongly strong identification with the EU. So they've they've generally failed to produce a European demos. I'm not saying one could never emerge. Um, I'm not a nationalist. I don't think that you know, the nation is the only possible scale of governance. You know, it, hmm. they were there were other other scales of governance in the past: city states. Um, you know, principalities, the church, and so on. The nation has been an incredibly successful um, way of organizing um, politics and making people feel a sense of belonging. But there's no reason why that couldn't be transcended at some point in the future to create a larger grouping. But that hasn't happened in the European Union, and its very structures militate against it. So, um, you know, I think this DM25 thing is is doomed to fail. Doom 25 might be a better way of um, <laughs> labeling it. Um, and he doesn't understand that the EU cannot be reformed. So let's just think about what would need to happen for the EU to yeah, be please, really structured. That would be, be really interesting. Sure. To structurally transform the European Union, you would have to have um, two-thirds of governments within the EU uh, dominated by reformist or, um, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. radical governments, mm-hmm. because that's what you need in order to uh, push through amendments of uh, treaties and all these kind of things. Um, the likelihood of radical governments coming to power in two-thirds of EU member states is vanishingly small. You know, I, I've got more chance of winning the Eurovision Song Contest than that happening. 
I haven't seen so, the karaoke, Lee, so I don't. Uh, I don't, don't know. want to see it. But <laughs> um, it 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 is not going to happen. Yeah, it's a fantastical project, and if we have to wait for radical governments to come to power across the EU um, in order to reform the EU, then we're going to be waiting a very, very long time. And in the interim, the people who are really thriving within the EU are right-wing populists uh-huh. because they're the ones that are filling this void between the people and the political establishment because they point to the void and they mobilize people among, among populist lines. That is because the European Union reflects and entrenches that estrangement of the establishment from the people. This is why right-wing populism is a, is a structural feature of European Union politics. Hmm. So by the time we wait for Varoufakis's fantastical you know, left-wing governments coming to power across the entire EU, more and more right-wing populist governments would actually have come to power across the European Union, as they already are in places like Italy and Hungary, for example. So the people that are following him are really just... Um, very, very misguided, I think, and yeah. he should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> I'll cancel my membership of DM25. Right Are you a member? <laughs> yeah, I am actually. Yeah, I am. But uh, <laughs> okay. I don't. I, I don't take it. I, I take your. I take. I. I am in a in a in a position of being uh, open-minded of on, on on many of these things at the moment. Uh, I have a lot of questions, and you're and that's why you're on the show, Lee, to help me to help you reason <laughs> through these things, and so the listeners can can hear what you have to say. Um, one of the things you've just said there is that the um, the far right um, is filling the void. And um, I have said um, that I have that I believe a, a second referendum is a terrible idea, um, frankly, because I think if it if it um, fails, it, uh, you know, it, it, it potentially emboldens the far right if it if it wins it it clearly only wins because the labor party has shifted um to a, a fairly overtly anti-working class position and um and and emboldens again uh, the far right in the void so does 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 that concern um about you know that the second referendum movement uh, preoccupy you or, or, or do, do you do you feel the stakes are that high am i overblowing the concern here i think the stakes are incredibly high around a second referendum but we have to be careful about um invoking uh possibilities of civil unrest or violence yes, yeah. i think that you know the project fear can be on both sides uh-huh. um, it's not it's not good to terrorize people and use fear to motivate them to support you. That's, that's not what any principled um, person should try to do. Hmm, so I think we need to keep it in proportion. But on, the, on what's at stake and with the second referendum, it's, it's very clear that what would, at stake, what would be at stake is democracy itself. It wouldn't really be about the terms of departure from the European Union because the whole purpose of having a second referendum the people that are promoting it, it's not leave voters that are saying, oh, we were conned, oh, we were stupid, oh, we didn't have the right information, but we've changed our minds, can we please have another say? There's very little evidence that anybody's changed their minds. Uh-huh. Um, it's Remain voters, it's diehard um, Europhiles, they're the ones that are saying, let's have a second referendum. So the clear motivation is to overturn 
the results of the first referendum. And so what would be at stake with a second referendum yeah. would be the question of consent in British politics. Is it possible for um, the British electorate to issue an instruction to their elected representatives and expect that instruction to be carried out? Or uh, can they politically reject that either explicitly by saying, well, we don't agree with it, um, we're not going to do it, or reject it implicitly by implementing it in such a botched manner that everybody wants to call it off anyway, and then just bounce it all back to the people and say, oh, well, you know, can you please change your mind, change the instruction, because we don't want to do that. I mean, that is just absolutely disastrous for democracy. Um, that if the political establishment seriously think that they can get away with um, with rejecting an instruction from the electorate. And so merely calling um, a second referendum, I think, would confirm in the minds of many British citizens that, well, we were, we were right all along, that the political establishment don't listen to us. Um, it doesn't make any difference if you vote. And they will be incredibly demoralized um, and disaffected and, and probably withdraw from politics uh, permanently. So at the very least, it would it would really entrench that void uh, that we've been talking about yes. at the heart of political life. Yeah. Um, of course, that, that also creates the conditions for right-wing populists to flourish. So it's, it's not impossible um, that that would happen, but also I think kind of simmering resentment and uh, withdrawal is also possible. Um, in the end, uh, there are structural barriers to right-wing populists being too successful in the UK but what I think is the overall trajectory is you know, to go back to this concern that people had that they weren't being yeah. listened to. Um, people flirted first with the British National Party mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, which is, which is a far-right um, fringe party. And they started to have some successes, um, but they remained pretty fringe. And then they were dropped, they were abandoned. And then people started flirting with the UK Independence Party, who were the main, who were the main pro-Brexit party, and they became kind of wildly successful. It's the closest, I suppose, to what um, on the continent you you would recognise as a right-wing populist party. But Farage. then immediately after so, the, yeah. the yeah Nigel Farage and, and, and UKIP, um, immediately after the referendum, uh, not only did the right-wing leave. Uh, campaign leaders fall about themselves stabbing each other in the back and the front. Hmm. Um, the UK Independence Party absolutely imploded. They've been through four leaders since the referendum. They've lost their major donors. They've lost their only MP and many councillors. And they just were almost annihilated in the general election in 2017. And the far right is absolutely nowhere. I mean, fewer than 5,000 people voted for the, for the BNP in the last general election. So you're in a moment where, thanks to the Brexit vote, where it's a, it's, it was an opportunity for people to rebel against the political elite and compel them to listen to them. Currently, the UK is inoculated against right-wing populism um, on top of the deeper structural barriers, which I, which I think is basically that British people on the whole aren't very racist and intolerant, despite what, the, what um, certain people suggest. And also the first-past-the-post electoral system means it's very difficult for challenger parties to enter the system. Um, but on top of that, I think the Brexit vote has created a kind of inoculation effect. But that will, you know, that will wear off if the yeah. establishment say, actually, we'll just go back to ignoring you 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's really terrible, I think, in a in a democratic society, and and I think the campaign would be really ugly. That's interesting. That's not exactly the answer I was expecting from you. Actually, I I, I thought you might be someone who, uh, given some of your analysis, um, would would maybe be a bit more worried about again, you know, what happens in that void. Um, so that's very interesting. I am worried about that, but I think we shouldn't. We shouldn't foreground it in the way that we discuss these things. You know, people, for example, who want the UK to remain in the European Union sometimes say, oh, if we leave the EU, Hmm. then we'll have a return to troubles in Ireland and Hmm. there'll be a return to Republican violence and terrorism. And that's that's an attempt to mobilize threats of violence to say, oh, we can't leave the EU. And this is this is the mirror image is to say, oh, well, there'll be, you know, riots on the streets and, you know, fascists will come up if we if we don't implement Brexit. That Neither of those arguments are good arguments. I mean, it seems to me the second one has more basis in reality. But either way, we shouldn't be kind of threatening each other mm-hmm. with with spectres of violence and shroud waving to try to get our own. Way. We should have a we should have a more mature discussion about these things. Mm, well said. Well said. And, and one, one that's based on principle rather than fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, well, you mentioned the north of Ireland there just a, a second ago, so uh, perhaps we should turn to that topic next. Um, I think it's clear that if, um, if, if Theresa May's draft does not pass uh, next week, one of the reasons will be uh, because the Democratic Unionist Party has withdrawn its support from the Tories. Um, and one of the reasons why it would do that would be because uh, Theresa May will have put some kind of customs check in the middle of the Irish Sea. Um, were a full Brexit to happen or even um, something close to one, um, it does place the question of the border on the table. And I agree with you. I think it's irresponsible to exaggerate potential for violence were a Northern Irish border reestablished. I think there's a lot of people in Ireland who make that kind of claim too casually. Um, That said, um, there are kind of logistical issues that emerge for the people living on that border, it's uh, it's almost 500 kilometers long. There's, you know, houses right on top of it. You know, <laughs> family homes, mm. farmsteads, um, dairy farms. Uh, now, I I know it's a technical question, and I don't expect you to be able to analyze it fully in the context of a podcast episode. But do, do you have a broad position on the Northern Irish border and and how the UK, how could the UK implement a border? without violating something that I think maybe not all listeners would be aware of, but it's very important. I think it, it, it predates the European Union and it's, it's, it's part of the history of Ireland's independence from the United Kingdom um, dating back to the 1920s. Um, there is a common travel area between the Republic mm-hmm. and the United Kingdom and ipso facto this freedom of movement within then the EU yeah. Um, yeah. for people living in the north of Ireland. So so what should be the, the broad brush ideas or principles that guide us in, in dealing with this question? I mean, the you know, starting principle should be that, as you say, we managed to manage that border for a long time before the EU. And there's mm-hmm. never been any 
prospect of us saying, oh, we're not going to trade with the Republic of Ireland or we're going to end the common travel area, which has existed long before uh, freedom of movement in the in the EU. Right. I mean, you know, Irish people have been coming over here and um, living and working here and voting here for um, decades. There's no reason why that would end. Right. Um, but you're right that the, the border issue has been absolutely central to the the Brexit discussions because um, of this desire to avoid what's called a hard border. In other words, that you, there shouldn't be any kind of customs checks yeah. or checks on on movement of people between the north and the south because there's a there's a fear that this would potentially um, disrupt the, the peace agreement signed in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. And both sides, the UK and Ireland, have been very committed to maintaining the status quo as much as possible. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is, how can you maintain an open border if the UK is leaving the EU? So is then outside of the customs area of the EU. And so the UK has tried to, to devise various mechanisms to, um, to kind of fudge this issue to make, it, to make it work. And the EU has stood full square behind Dublin and I think really leverage this issue to keep the UK as closely aligned to the EU as possible and rejected all of the solutions put forward by the UK in favour of a backstop um, agreement, backstop protocol to the withdrawal agreement. And to put this simply, you know, the UK is first leaving the EU, then, only then, will the EU allow it to negotiate a future relationship with the EU, yes. which might then resolve the, the Irish border issue, for example, if we, you know, found some new customs arrangement or something like that. But we haven't been able to negotiate that as part of the withdrawal agreement. The EU wouldn't do that. So the backstop kicks in if we're unable to negotiate a future agreement, a future relationship with the EU mm -hmm. during the transition period by the end of 2020. And that will then keep Northern Ireland within the EU um, customs area, essentially, and, and aligned on virtually every kind of... Um, regulation the uk aligned a bit more loosely and the backstop is is the most problematic part of the withdrawal agreement because you can only get out of it with eu agreement so your your capacity to 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 change the way your own sovereign territory is run is is down to whether the eu will allow you to change or not that's even worse than eu membership because at least as an eu member mm -hmm. you can trigger article 50 and walk away literally we cannot get out of the backstop without the eu's consent yeah so that lock that will then potentially lock us into this kind of quasi customs union arrangement indefinitely um which and would potentially risk uh, people in say scotland i mean i'm not not, not again i am taking seriously your uh, suggestion earlier on that we not scaremonger but i wouldn't uh rule out the possibility that people living in scotland could sort of look at what northern ireland has sort of obtained out of that in sense almost like a sort of a special dispensation to sort of have a kind of a unique brexit of its own that that would leave it economically sort of within the european union maybe gaining certain advantages that the rest of the uk wouldn't have and that it might even I think is that is that too much yeah, to I say think that's not, well, it's not very likely that that the eu would ever agree to that because it took a lot of pushing to get the eu to agree to a uk-wide backstop Right, but um, Scotland itself it, has recently had separatist movement, like a, its own referendum on on separation from should, the UK. I just wondered, that's, that's, you know, could that that's be? Mm. 
that's absolutely true that they could you know pursue independence and then but then they would presumably opt for full EU membership mm-hmm. i think the the what you're what you're kind of correctly gesturing towards is that the logic of this backstop arrangement is eventually to return to eu membership because essentially you're subject to a whole host of eu rules and regulations without any say as to how they're formulated so it's worse in two respects than eu membership no exit and no say um so it's it's not a it's not something that any democrat could could seriously support i think but you know we have different views about this even in the group and we have different you know it, the full brexit is not a political party we take different right. views people just take account of take responsibility for what they write on the site and there was a piece we published on the irish border which was incredibly controversial because what yes, we said please, was if you wouldn't mind talk about that yeah, yeah sure the, we you know we we said we cannot square this circle um it is not possible to um have a soft border and leave the european union so if we don't sort the border problem out we will end up with a brexit in name only outcome in order to avoid the soft border so we should we should drop the pretense that we can have a soft border that we can have zero um surveillance of of border crossings and zero checks and so on it is perfectly possible to minimize those checks and to minimize friction and disruption on the border so when we talk about a hard border you know people have i think images of barbed wire fences and concrete um you know bunkers and machine gun emplacements or something mm-hmm. the way that the way that normal international borders are managed is very far from that i mean switzerland um the borders in switzerland are already managed using technology the technology exists the issue is a political unwillingness to say okay you know we're leaving the eu therefore we're going to have to manage this border the same way we would manage any other external border with any other country uh, but there's never been a willingness to do that on the part of the uk authorities um and dublin has been i think you know really hard line on this and has dragged the whole eu behind it mm-hmm. but essentially you know we the uk is sovereign in northern ireland that's the the terms of the good friday agreement affirm british sovereignty over northern ireland mm-hmm. the uk of ireland abandoned its claim of sovereignty over the north yes so the uk is responsible you know the uk it collects taxes, it provides public services, it's UK currency, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's British sovereign territory. So it's up to the UK government to manage that territory, and, and that includes managing its border. Um, but that there is no willingness on the UK side to accept the responsibility that comes with that. Um, and that's, so it's, it's fundamentally a political problem. I think there's been a lot of kind of dishonesty and chicanery on 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 the Irish issue. It's not, I don't follow the Irish debates very closely, but we've got right. a lot of abuse for that article. Um, there's no other way of putting it. Um, Possibly because sovereignty, you know, which is a pivotal concept for you is not exactly uh, a, a, uh, as cherished as it might once have been on the left. Uh, uh, we, we, we've uh, a new left uh, in the last decades and uh, one that sort of, I don't want to say maybe overstated, but I mean, uh, there's a there's a sense in which sovereignty is is seen as an intrinsically anti-democratic concept. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's which is uh, completely the opposite of what it actually is. You know, sovereignty means that there's no higher authority 
So sovereignty is what enables democracy, because if you want your government to be accountable to you, then there can't be anybody else above it telling it what to do. That's why a local county um, government is not sovereign, right? The national government is sovereign because there's no one above it. So the national government is the one that ultimately calls the stops, but also calls the shots. Um, but the buck stops with it. You know, if you want to then change the national government, you can. It's clear where lines of authority are. Once sovereignty blurs and you start sharing sovereignty with um, other agencies and other countries and pooling sovereignty and so on, sovereignty has been lost. It's never quite clear who's responsible for a particular outcome. And whole vast areas of public policymaking are transferred into um, a tran a, a transformed into matters for international diplomacy. The, what traction can an ordinary person have on those secretive, closed-door discussions that aren't, aren't even minuted um, at the European level? None whatsoever. So if you want to have accountable government, you have to have sovereignty. So that's what sovereignty means for us. But, you know, it is construed by some people in, in completely other ways. So when we made this argument about Northern Ireland, there was a Jean Monnet professor who said that it was um, suggestive of ethnic homogeneity and something that belonged in the 19th century, mm -hmm. essentially accused of being racist. Uh, yeah. Sovereignty means ethnic homogeneity. means absolutely does not. Mm -hmm. um, it just refers to a particular population in space. Of course, right. that population can be multi-ethnic. And the very first proposal on our website was to grant immediate um, British citizenship to all EU citizens living in the in the UK. So this is hardly a defence of some kind of you know white nation or something ludicrous like that. Um, and we were accused of being militarist, imperialist, and all this kind of stuff because we were talking about British sovereignty in Northern Ireland. Um, and of course, it's very controversial. You know, the Irish issue has been um, dragging on for a long time. There's certainly members of the group would be perfectly happy for the. Um, the people of Northern Ireland to exercise their rights under the Good Friday Agreement to have a border poll on integrating with the Republic. So, you know, if the if the natural um, tendency of the Brexit process is, is to speed up the reunification of Ireland, there's plenty of people associated with the full Brexit would be perfectly happy with that. Um, it's not that we have any kind of nostalgia for British imperialism or, right. or we think somehow Britain has a right to Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, quite the opposite. I mean, some members of the group uh, were involved in the campaigns to for, for a united Ireland um, during what was essentially a, a civil war. So, you know, we, that position is very misconstrued, I think, uh, that we want to kind of send the black and tans back to, to beat up the Irish or something ridiculous like that. I mean, what we said is that we cannot allow the threat of violence of a few Republicans prevent us from restoring normal border management right. and therefore influencing the will of the majority of British people. And we used to take it for granted that the, the threats of, of terrorists should not determine public policy. But with this issue, that principle has been thrown out of the window. Mm, so people use the, use the IRA as a sort of stage army for remaining in the EU. You know, oh, we can't do we can't do anything to disrupt the status quo on the border, or we'll we'll go back to civil war, um, which essentially means that a few diehard Republicans can overturn the will of the majority of British people. I mean, that's just completely unacceptable for any Democrat. 
Lee, um, one last question, I think, before you go, and I want to thank you again for, for, for joining us. We've been joined today by Lee Jones, Reader in International Politics at Queen Mary University of London, um, on the topic of Brexit. Um, you, uh, again, today, just uh, have this piece on your blog, The, the Full Brexit. Um, uh, I, I, if I understand you correctly, uh, suggesting that uh, Theresa May's draft deal should not be accepted. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And um, my old friend, Chris Bickerton, has a piece saying it should be right. Uh, right. accepted. So, you know, reasonable people can disagree about these things. Absolutely. It's a very complex uh, crisis. Absolutely. Um, just, you know, I, I think just in, in terms of um, anticipating the, the next stages of this, um, it, it looks at least in the in the near term like th- that your outcome is your preferred outcome is is the likely outcome and um it just recalls to me um some of the debates that took place um in and around uh the grexit movement when greece was stricken by its uh, financial crisis but back in 2015 um there were a number of conferences in greece um where leading left intellectuals gathered to debate the, the merits of Greece leaving the euro and potentially even leaving the European Union. Um, when they debated this issue, uh, Kostas Lapovitsis and Leo Panic uh, obviously had very different um, positions on this. But one of the arguments that Leo Panic put forward was that, you know, one of the things we need to be careful about is whether we're ready for what comes next right? Um, sure, the left can get power. Sure, we can have a very good critique of the European Union, as Kostas Lapovitsis might. But um, when it comes to doing something quite bold, like leaving the European Union, you can find, because you don't just want to leave, right? You want to also leave in a way that um, honors uh, your commitments as a leftist to to social justice, to to an equitable industrial strategy, um, to welfare. Um, how can these be achieved um, if they couldn't be achieved by Greece under exit? And, and I think Leo Panitch was persuasive on that. Um, I appreciate the UK is a much more advanced country than than Greece is economically and industrially. But do do you worry that you know you would face the the wrath of global capital? Were you to be successful and and achieve a full Brexit? I mean, there's no doubt that if you um, tried to pursue, you know, radical left wing policies, you would certainly face a reaction from the global capital. Mm-hmm. But I think I would want to draw a distinction between um, Brexit, which simply means the UK actually leaving the European Union sure. instead of just being tied tied to it in a variety of ways, and what's often called Lexit. So I don't call myself a Lexit. You're not a Lexit. I, I, you know, I'm on the left, yeah, and I support Brexit. So some people would say, "Well, you're a Lexit then," and I, I don't like that label. And I, I will just explain why. Because sure, please, that's very interesting. Some people, um, and maybe Leo Panitch is one of them. When they think about Lexit, they what they mean is they want Brexit to achieve socialist outcome, but in and of itself. Yeah. Brexit is supposed to push the country in a socialist direction. And if it doesn't, then they don't support it. Right. And that was the that was the, the view of the majority of you know British leftists before the referendum, the people around Navarra Media, 
Owen Jones, Paul Mason, people like that. They're saying, look, the balance of forces is not is not good for the left. Mm-hmm. Left is too weak. Mm-hmm. It can only empower the right. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So therefore, we've got to stay in the EU. Now at the moment, some of these Navarra crowd, they're, they're moving and they're saying, oh, well, because of Corbyn, you know, now we can, we can achieve Lexit. I think there are a number of problems with this um, position. The first one is that socialism is about democracy. It's about extending democracy from the political sphere into the economic sphere, into all spheres of our life. So if you don't support democracy against the undemocratic nature of the EU, or you only support democracy when it looks like your side is going to win, that is unprincipled, it's opportunist, and it actually adds to the decay of British democracy. The second point, and this is like the the discussion we had about Varoufakis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if we have to wait for a socialist takeover before Brexit can happen, then we'll wait forever. <laughs> and, that, and that has got to do with the nature of the EU itself. The EU, it, it, the EU grows out of the defeat of the left in the 1980s. That's how it's able to lock in neoliberalism at a continental level and entrench what Stephen Gill calls economic constitutionalism. It entrenches that um, the weakness of the left by depoliticizing economic governance, by locking in um, there is no alternative, um, and that's not something the left should, should should welcome. The reality is that opposition to the EU is surging now mm-hmm. across the European Union. Yeah, indeed. Um, and if the left will not step up and lead it, then it only creates a leadership vacuum. Yeah. Um, for for the right to exploit. So the, so the task is for the left to step up um, and lead things in a more progressive direction. You can only imagine the situation we would be in now if Jeremy Corbyn had stuck to his principles as a lifelong Eurosceptic right. and led Labour into a campaign against the European Union in 2016. The Tory government would have fallen and Labour would be in control. Instead, people are worried because some far-right loser called Tommy Robinson is staging yeah. a a Brexit betrayal rally and and trying to kind of claim the mantle of um, of all Leave voters, which they certainly do not want to be led by um, a dick like that. Um, but sure. some people on the left are saying, "Oh yes, well this proves that you know Brexit was always about fascism." Total guff. What it proves is there's still a leadership vacuum because the left has still not um, uh, found its balls and been able to, and been willing to lead people in the direction they want to be led in. Yeah. And so, of course, there's a vacuum that the right will exploit. And the third, the third problem is I think it really, um, this position really exaggerated the strength of the right. Um, so there's no doubt right-wing populism is a problem across Europe, but the hysterical um, commentary that surrounded Brexit and still surrounds it to a certain extent, that it would... It would empower a Faragist takeover and there'd be Weimar Britain or even fascism. Um, you know, leading political commentators making these ridiculous claims. The reality is the right completely imploded after Brexit. Um, the Leave campaign has spelled out no vision whatsoever. The whole process um, has subsequently been led by Remainers. UKIP has imploded. The far right is absolutely nowhere. Um, so it... It's this kind of left defeatism that I think we have to position ourselves against. Right. Um, the left will never be in a position to lead. It'll never, it'll never recover its position until it starts to actually try to lead and fight for things. If we just hunker down and say, well, we must wait for more propitious circumstances, comrade, mm. then 
you know, we just end up twiddling our thumbs mm. while the people who are willing to act, they're the ones that exploit the circumstances um, and actually exert leadership and take the population with them. So, you know, if the left in Greece had managed to get itself together and lead people out of the EU, there wouldn't have been the threat of a golden dawn takeover. But in the, because the left is wedded to the European Union, pe people who are desperate, and there are really nobody more desperate in, in Europe these days than the Greeks, um, of course they will turn to the right. In some ways, it's amazing that Golden Dawn have not triumphed altogether by now, given the depredations that have been imposed yeah. on the Greek people. So the left creates a self-fulfilling prophecy when it, when it analyzes things in that way. Uh, the right is not actually all that strong. It's only strong in the absence of... Of yeah. left leadership yeah it's well said well said lee lee this is great thanks so much for coming on um as i think you know uh, i've said to you in separate communications that uh we'll, we'll probably be returning to this issue in the coming months but um obviously it's a quickly developing area so i would love it if you would uh maybe come back on next year in the new year sometime to uh, give us your thoughts again as uh, we find out the terms of the Brexit and uh, how Theresa May fares with her uh, management of it. It'd be great to have you back on again, Lee. Well, I'd love to come back on. That's, of course, if, if, if I survive the Brexit apocalypse. You know, we're supposed to run out of drinking water. <laughs> um, so if that, if that does happen, uh, then I'm afraid I won't be able to join you. But uh, otherwise, I look forward to it. <laughs> Well, it rains a lot in the UK, as I know, and uh, I, I suspect you'll have plenty of water. Uh, okay, Lee, listen, thanks, mate, and we'll talk to you soon, yeah? Pleasure to speak to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.